HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Nels Wessel of Brooklyn Butcher Blocks. I think I was first introduced to uh, you and your product, which are Butcher Blocks, if you didn't get it by the name, uh, through Joel at Cut Brooklyn, who you used to work for for a bit. Yeah, um, I worked with Joel for about a year. Um, I found him actually... uh, on a you know the New York Times article that aired in February 2009 yeah um and uh, it was kind of really my first week back in the east coast after six months in uh, Portland Oregon on a road trip um and I you know it was the first time I met him and we kind of talked about uh you know in the fall me starting to work for him yeah we'll we'll get to that relationship and what's forged ahead since then but first kind of want to start with your childhood because it's not been butcher blocks your whole life yeah you you weren't raised in like a butcher block house (laughs) butcher block toys and no that way no no yeah so where where did you actually uh grow up because uh, nils wessel is a you know a, a swedish name yeah uh i mean i i grew up in lots of places um i Really, I guess, you know, I primarily grew up, the majority of my uh, childhood was in Athens, Ohio. And uh, I basically spent uh, every summer um, either in Vermont with my mother's side of the family or uh, in Maine with my father's side of the family. Where, where in Vermont and Maine? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Mount Holly, Vermont, which uh, is next to Okemo Mountain, as maybe some people, you know... Uh, just to give some people sort of like a geographic uh, idea. And then 
uh, my dad's side of the family, they uh, have a property on uh, Shibig Island off the coast of Portland, Maine. Yeah, I, th- I think I just want people to uh, visualize a little more of the Northeast Kingdom in Maine, vacation land, and the forestry around, because I think these were, you know, influences that you didn't necessarily see coming. Yeah, I'm, I mean, there's definitely, you know, sort of like a lifestyle, too. Um, my, I mean, my uh, grandfather and uncle both sort of built their properties um, from sort of the ground up. I, <laughs> I mean, like how you say sort of. They, they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, not yeah, sort of, entirely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all right. They, so They raise barns. Yeah. Those, those Wessels. Yeah, yeah well, that, that was actually the Connors. That's yeah, the yeah. Connor yeah. side of the family. Um, the Wessel side of the family, you know, they, uh, they're they sort of like more of, um, they're, they're really, you know, so like my mom's side of the family, I guess, you know, it's like, there's, it's like Terra, it's land for them. Yeah. From my dad's side of the family, it's much more like, you know, water, surf. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just like entire lifestyle. My, um, so my, uh, uncle and grandfather on my mother's side, um, they both just, and they, they built their own properties basically. Um, what started as kind of like a small cabin, uh, that my uh, grandfather bought for like a summer home has now expanded to, I'm basically like a complex. I mean, it's like a huge house. <laughs> There's a barn that was built next to it that my uncle used to live in that then was converted more into a house by my mother. Um, my grandfather, you know, kept on sort of accumulating more tools to sort of clear land. So what was like once like kind of like uh, a good deal for like sort of trees, he kind of like took down me into a large meadow. Um, and so then, you know, for that, you need a big tractor. So, well, if you have a tractor, you need to put a tractor someplace. So then they, you know, had to build like a barn. Well, then they got cars, you know, pretty soon they had like two, three bay garages, <laughs> you know, they have like... Uh, to like a pond, a pool. I mean, it's it's kind of nuts. They just, they have a real addiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> a property addiction. I mean, or building on building. property. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of yeah. Well, sort of like their sort of like creative force. My uncle, um, yeah, uh, he basically they're sort of a neighboring town, Rutland. Um, there is a barn. He dismantled it and rebuilt it in Mount Holly, um, and then also just kept adding to it. He wouldn't yeah. stop. So now, like, what was kind of like an old rustic barn became, like, actually, like, a Victorian house with, like, secret passageways in it. Um, and, you know, he built himself a woodshop, like, you know, a two-bay garage. I mean, it just, it just he yeah. also built himself two ponds. You know, it's almost like a race between my uncle and my grandfather. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like there's always got to be, like, another project. But it's great. Like, you have this long lineage of, uh, I want to say this correctly, tinkerers. Yeah, rather than tinklers, uh, tinkerers. Yeah, you know? kind of like DIY. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from your grandfather playing with tools and, uh, you know, things in the garage to raising a barn, literally raising a barn. Um, but property-wise, I mean, it, it's hard here in Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, you don't have much property. Um, I, I remember when we had talked last, you you were talking about how you also started accumulating tools in your basement. Was it in Sunset Park uh, with six foot high ceilings? And yeah, you know, uh, Nils is not a midget <laughs> and had to hunch over and literally. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was kind of an interesting experience. Yeah, so uh, I was in Sunset Park and uh, just started. I, you know, like my forebears, I guess. Yeah. I uh, started tinkering in my base in my basement. Cause that's what I had. Um, and you know, started kind of low level equipment to start working my, you know, uh, working my way up to some, you know, nicer stuff. Um, and you know, more and more, you know, projects. Um, yeah. And that was, that was really unpleasant. It was like kind of hot down there, surprisingly <laughs> and very low ceilings. You know, I mean, it was, if it was six, you'd be perfect since I'm like five ten. Yeah. I made five low in my boots. But then, you know, if you take into account plumbing and, like, lighting and everything else, then you're hunched over. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the space you work in now is not that much bigger, but it does have high ceilings. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, I can stand up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, right now it's not much bigger. I've lofted, you know, half the space, but, and there's still, like, plenty of headroom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's not generous in space at all. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump back in time a little bit okay. um, and talk about, you mentioned Portland, Oregon, going yes. to school there. Well, no. Uh, so I went to school, actually, at Bard College oh, okay. in upstate New York. Yeah. And then afterwards... Um, I went out to uh, Portland, Oregon um, to give that a shot. Yeah, uh, and what did you go to school for? Uh, so uh, I went to school for art. Um, I had, I, I, yeah, I majored in um, studio arts and really sort of uh, uh, concentrated on um, sort of installation sculpture and then also sort of minored in art history. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you were moving to Portland, Oregon to hopefully accomplish yourself as an artist or sculptural in- installer. Um. I mean, I had never planned to stay actually in Portland, Oregon, yeah. like permanently. Um, I mean, in retrospect, uh, you know, my girlfriend at the time had gone, and it just seemed like the right thing to do then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we thought it'd be sort of like a, a good next step. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get to the art specifically, you know, which artists uh, influence you, who you actually studied, what kind of projects you did. But. I want to, you know, now fast forward from Portland to moving back to New York because that wasn't the right place. You also spent some time in Woodstock. Yes. So after, um, you know, Portland, Oregon really didn't work out. I was like, you know, this is a little silly. I I know, like even when I moved to Portland, I know at some point I was going to move to Brooklyn. Yeah. So I kind of um, need to get my life back on track after um, Portland. It just wasn't quite the right fit. So I just spent the next uh, few months there working for a carpenter and for an artist. Yeah. Um, it just, to, I don't know figure out like what it was I was going to do yeah. in Brooklyn. Who, who specifically? Um, so uh, Ken uh, Landauer, who's a carpenter and artist, and yeah. uh, his wife Julian Schwartz, who's, who's an artist. Excellent. And which one comes first in carpenter and artist? I mean, you, you mentioned that you know he does both, but is it uh, kind of an amalgamation of the two titles, or is it he, he builds bookcases and then he builds installations? I, I would say uh, kind of all three. He does sort yeah. of like things that sort of like are right on the line, um, and then he does things that you know are distinctly like you know like this is like a staircase, and then you know this is like a particular like art project. Yeah. Um, so I would actually say all three probably. It's kind of funny to hear that you know an emotive artist can also be very utilitarian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like uh, Ken, too, really served as a, a sort of like a, a first model. And Joel, too, um, as sort of really blurring that line of sort of like craft and art. Um, and craft, like, to be even more specific, not just sort of like, you know, like arts and crafts, like, you know, like pop school stick art, but actually like, you know, kind of dedicating, your, dedicating yourself to like a particular um, method of making something. Yeah. Um, and kind of seeing them both at work uh I don't know. It, it kind of threw a lot of things into perspective for me. Yeah. I mean, the word artisan. Yeah. Artisanal. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but I think often goes overlooked that there's actually an artist behind it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people think of it more as a maker or, you know, a That's production. Kind of, yeah. Maker sort of a term I prefer. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like as a catch all. I feel like that really kind of catches the essence of it. Um, I think we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about couple of the art movements, maybe arts and crafts movement to Dada. Um, okay. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back.
public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join Linda Palaccio for a taste of the past every Thursday at 12 p.m. as she indulges her curiosities about food, cooking, drinking, and dining of the past by taking a journey through culinary history. Linda interviews authors, scholars, friends, and chroniclers to learn about what was eaten, where, and how, from as long ago as ancient Mesopotamia and Rome, right up to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. The show underscores food as a lively link between present and past cultures. Again, that's Thursday at 12 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Nils Wessel of Brooklyn Butcher Blocks. We were just kind of talking about that blurred line between, uh, you know, like artist and maker, the artisan. Um, and I, I, I kind of found that really interesting, you know, that someone can be, like we uh, mentioned before, both emotive and utilitarian. And uh, one of the people you referred to and then ended up working with was Joe Bukowitz at a cut brooklyn um and you found him through new york times and you guys uh you know worked in the shop together but what what kind of you know techniques and what kind of methodology did he instill in you uh or did you learn from him that kind of blurred that line between art and craft yeah um i think it was just how just how deliberate um he was in his like just like making a knife um just how specific it was uh and just seeing like really how much time he kind of like really would obsess over like every detail yeah i mean yeah i feel like that was sort of like some really key components um do you also think too you know because his his are really one-of-a-kind objects um as are your butcher blocks that working on the singular sometimes changes you know uh it more towards artisan uh than doing a production line yeah, uh, I, I definitely think that's the case, you know, working on um, sort of an individual piece. I mean, uh, I, def- I definitely feel like this um, holds true for me, and I, I think Joel's, you know, said this probably uh, a few times before, but, you know, um, he's always kind of like, he, he, I guess I'll just talk more specifically about him, but, you know, he's, he's sort of mentioned um, before, like, how he's always kind of, like, seeking to make the perfect knife, and each one um, kind of contributes to an improvement of, like, just, like, his craftsmanship of a knife in general. Yeah. Um, and because, you know, he's working one at a time and each one's like a sort of very personal experience. Each one's very like, you know, to him, I mean, you know, to me, like the layman or, you know, everything looks, you know, it's like, well, I mean, they look very similar, but, you know, to him, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's like, Does there's it cut? Some, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's very, you know, um, he really can, I guess, can sense a difference between, you know, each one. Yeah. So you made this shift from, uh, like art making to more functional objects when you met Joel as well and started making things such as cabinets, shelves, uh, sayas, which were the knife sheaths that uh, Joel uses for his tools, but also cutting boards. Yeah. Uh, why did you start making those kind of objects? Um, I guess uh, I was just kind of keep on hitting my head against the wall with art. And it's just kind of like, you know, I just need to put that like aside for right now. And I need to do something kind of like, you know, freshen things up and just see what happens. I need to experiment, really, is what it came down to. So, um, you know, having worked with the carpenter, um, and it seems like I've been naturally kind of like gravitating towards, you know, wood. I mean, that's sort of what I, while, you know, maybe um, I, my, my uh, uncle did, you know, some sort of like fine um, woodworking, you know, in general, sort of like more construction-based but, you know, still just being around all that all the time, I think, you know, I was just naturally gravitating towards wood. So I said, you know, why don't I just try and make, 
like something that kind of um something that i guess has been made and then just try to like make it better yeah i mean how did you educate yourself to make your first cutting board i mean did you take a course or was it just in your blood from years of generations <laughs> uh, kind of a combination you know i mean actually like a lot of the finer kind of woodworking t- techniques um i i guess i wasn't really introduced to like you know the specifics um from my family even though you know, i might have seen it uh so i actually had to just like read up on that um in terms of sort of just like otherwise yeah i think just being around it you know you just have kind of like a natural inclination to kind of work with your hands and you know you just kind of like develop that sort of skill i guess yeah so how did you eliminate cabinets how did you eliminate sayas and focus on cutting boards um i mean you know something that i i just i think at the end is something i just really enjoy the cabinets um you know it with sort of the tools i had was kind of hard um and frustrating it just didn't like stick quite the same um and there's a saying too about like the monolithic quality of a cutting board like or at least i, I guess how i'm i've been making them um that just was really appealing like just this like large hunk of wood really yeah just like yeah just a real monolithic quality it's a little it's a little more involved than just a large hunk of well, wood. Yeah, yeah yeah but i mean you know it just has this like really strong presence because it's just like just because it is monolithic yeah I guess. yeah so when did you actually make your first cutting board and what kind of wood and process did you go through to make it? Um, would have been about, I think a, a year and a half ago. Um, I had like some, um, cherry scraps. Um, and I was basically just, you know, milling those on the planer and then, um, kind of didn't really excuse my language, but asked backwards way. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it was just like a really slow, clumsy process. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe sort of like the, it in words like how you like put it together yeah um but i mean you mentioned planer uh, oh, not to okay. dark out on tools but yeah i mean is there an actual process that you now have developed to make these things oh okay yeah, yeah. uh yeah so you know basically it comes to me you know rough cut from pennsylvania um i have to uh join everything on the joiner so that way you know ensure it's perfectly flat yeah what exactly um, is joining okay yeah. sorry so joining is basically um <laughs> joining is uh Basically, you know, making two pieces would sort of um, attach. I mean, I'm using glue, so I'm not talking about, you know, like dovetail joinery. Yeah. But um, basically just sort of making like a, an edge glue, so like a flat glue. So uh, an entirely flat surface being glued up against another entirely flat surface um, and just gluing those together to make like, you know, one piece. Yeah. It's, And then you kind of push those all together, vice them. Yeah. So there's kind of two rounds of gluing. So I do that once and, you know, there might be like four or five boards that I'll, I'll glue like together like that in a panel um and then i have to resurface that putting it through the joiner and then planer um just to, again to ensure that you know it's perfectly flat it's freshly surfaced so you know it'll take um glue it'll, like really you know actually uh, soak it in uh and uh making cross cuts so basically making like uh cuts um that are perpendicular to the um grain um and then taking those, I usually do that in like sort of, sort of two inch strips. Yeah. Then, I, but why, why you know. uh, perpendicular? Is is it a strength thing? Is uh, it? I mean, it, it's, um, it's sorry, it's like really hard to describe this. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're otherwise you'd just be making a rip cup. So in other words, if I were just to like glue it together into a panel and um, then rip it, I'm basically I would just be ripping what I had just glued together. So basically, I'm making a cut perpendicular to the glue lines and the grain since the glue line is following the grain yeah um and you're really doing that to reveal in the end like the end grain so you want that grain um 
kind of coming upwards, your knife is descending down into it. Yeah. Um, so it's easier on the knife's edge. Um, and the fibers actually, when the knife comes up off the board, will kind of uh, seal back up, you know, yeah. instead of making like a permanent cut across the ground. Oh, so they're actually splitting a little bit, like giving way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, think of it like, so basically when it comes to my cutting boards, uh, like an, or an end grain cutting board, um, think of it like, so your standard cutting board it might be like long grain, which means it's kind of like taking the uh, a brush, putting it down on a table, um, and then just sort of like cutting it. So you're like literally cutting the bristles. Those bristles being the like metaphorically, you know, they're like the wood fibers. Um, and so my board is sit- instead is like putting that um, brush so that the bristles are pointing upwards, and a knife is cutting in between those bristles, or you know, yeah, more literally, more literally, you know, the wood fibers. Because you mentioned to me that you use a lot of uh, walnut and cherry, which are much softer woods than maple, yeah. which is kind of a standard uh, in the industry. Yeah, um, you know, just working with Julian, he had really emphasized sort of uh, keeping that knife sharp, and obviously an angrain board um, helps with that, but also, um, you know, a softer wood helps that, and yet, you know, cherry and walnut are still, um, you know, perfectly acceptable woods to use for that. Um, You know, they have, like, besides cutting boards, they also have a rich history, like, being used in furniture. So, you know, still, like, hard and stable, but um, softer than maple. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to lose sight of the cutting board itself, because after you join plain, stain, etc., you have a cutting board, which... You consider uh, monolithic and a very yeah. special presence, but were there artists, were there art movements that influenced the way that you make these, what I think, pieces of art? Because if you've not seen one of these cutting boards, they, they stand alone uh, to most other that I've worked with. Um, I mean, I think for me, like the main connection uh, is really just sort of like making. I feel like that's sort of like just the big theme of my life is always making something yeah. having been said i mean you know yeah sure you can i mean maybe draw some comparisons to like you know minimalism if you're to like do it to like a movement yeah um i you know model the quality yeah yeah i mean which minimalist artists were people that you studied and maybe got some kind of mantra off I'm, of you know i feel like judd's a, um is probably a pretty good example um tony smith um i don't know yeah. he yeah he's uh he's the father of uh kiki smith um, who's, you know, maybe some of the people might yeah. know. She's kind of big. Um, but yeah, he's sort of like an early minimalist in, uh, the sixties, I want to say. And, um, really, I, I'm just thinking of this one, like six by, you know, six foot, you know, cube, black cube he made. And I mean, you, you've mentioned to me too, people that do installations, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Nauman. Yes. Um, but how has that kind of influenced, uh, your art making? Um, my art making, I mean, I guess there's just like, you know, I, I guess I also mentioned, you know, Buster Keaton. There's just kind of like, they all kind of share like a sort of like per, particular sort of like deadpan, um, you know, humor, I yeah. guess. Um, and I don't know. I My family also so happens to be pretty uh, deadpan. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's probably, you know, the main connection. Yeah. Jasper Johns, Duchamps. Yeah. We're, we're, we're comedians, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I, I've been known for a terrible sense of humor. Yeah. Too, so. <laughs> but I mean, they had structural integrity. I mean, they, they had, yeah. like you were saying about Joel and your project, uh, you know, product, um, a lot of forethought before even, you know, making art. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty fair. Yeah. yeah. A lot of foundation as well. I mean, it's not like, you know, minimalist and dada movements weren't skilled artists yeah yeah well i mean you know uh, i mean duchamp obviously would be kind of like you know because he 
you know, the ready made that's a little different. Yeah. Um, so sort of maybe an exclusion, but yeah, I mean, um, Bruce Nam, you know, uh, and I feel like a number of species have like a real sort of like made quality to them. There's something about like kind of getting your, um, some of them, you know, getting your hands yeah. dirty. I mean, he also has sort of his like photographs, like with him with like, you know, say like a light bulb or something or something more simple, but he also has, you know, some stuff that's really sort of, sort of getting his hands dirty. Um, and you also mentioned someone else, Hama. Oh, Huma, Huma. Uh, Baba. Yeah. I yeah. don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, she's a contemporary, um, and I feel like uh, she, I mean, she in particular, actually more than any of those guys, I and mean, again, just a real, real made quality. You know, she's working with clay, lots of sort of like traditional like sculptural materials like um, chicken wire, um, kind of just like hunks of wood, and just puts them together in ways that are kind of humorous, but also like very touching. Or um, And there's this one uh, piece she has where it is... Um, this woman praying and it's just it's just really simple um she's i believe iranian uh and you know just kind of like this black trash bag then with sort of these clay hands and feet poking out on other end of like you know her just praying it was just oh it's just really touching and just very simple but i don't know it's just i don't know i just yeah i just really love her work. no it's kind of cool because it, they are common materials yeah um put in this context that obviously means something more than in particular, her utilitarian need, yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that she does use such sort of like traditional sort of materials, yeah. Uh, Louis Bourgeois, yes. Uh, Louis Bourgeois. Um, I just found you know the, the the sort of the range of her work always really inspiring. Also, you know, it would be kind of very focused. You know, there was like sort of like the big giant like metal um, uh, spiders, um, and then you also had sort of as she was aging um, before, right before her death. Uh, I think just this last year, uh, you know, she was working with a lot of, uh, you know, like fabric and like everything was just very like sewn and um, just very raw, I guess is maybe a, a good word to describe it. Yeah. Do raw. you miss that kind of installation? I mean, your art in college, what did you make? Um, so kind of pulling upon the uh, sort of the rich history of my family being sort of tinkerers and, and builders, um, I, I was pretty much making like large scale, um, like architectural installation. Uh, so like one piece I made was sort of this, um, like we had this like, amazing space. It was like a, f- a warehouse, like 14 foot high ceilings. I made this like giant revolving wall. Um, there's another piece where, uh, I had this ramp, like sort of filled with doors that, you know, it didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like uh, the Richard Serra's that were up at like Dia Beacon a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Those yeah, giant yeah. spiral metal pieces. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I kind of did a lot of stuff like passageways. It's also something I did a lot of, which I feel is very inspired sort of from my uncle's sort of crazy house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you say uh, passageways. And do you feel like you want to get back into the more structural, the house building, or do you want to go into insulation down the road? Or are you fine just meeting in the middle and perfecting the butcher block? Um, I think what, I think, you know, the sort of, uh, next direction of my life it's like you know i want to keep on sort of working on the block and i just sort of want to um expand i think maybe into like some furniture or something i mean i'm not really sure all i know it to me like it, it almost doesn't like matter i just want to like work with my hands and i want to work hard yeah that's kind of like i feel like the key thing for me and i want to keep doing the butcher blocks and then you know i'm not really sure what's next um i I definitely want there to kind of be like the next step in evolution. Yeah. Um, but I just, I'm not quite sure what that is. Yet. I mean, where do you go for inspiration? I've, I've been in the Smithsonian team, the furniture collection, I, mm-hmm. uh, the museum of natural history too, has 
amazing tables. Uh, yeah. If you just walk around there and, you know, you see these grandiose setups and all this art on the wall, if you just look at some of the furniture there, yeah. too, it's I mean, mind-blowing. I mean, I, I, I really love, I mean, it's not um, a particularly large, you know, collection, but at the Met, sort of like, sort of the uh, room with, like, a lot of Quaker furniture, um, I love that room. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean... It, I didn't even know they really had it until like, you know, a few months ago because I always had sort of like an arts education. So I was just always hanging around sort of all my favorite parts there would be like, you know, they have like the modern wing. And then I also have sort of a thing for like the Northern Renaissance. Yeah. So those would be the two places I'd hit. And I never bothered going to sort of like the furniture section. I was thinking like, well, why? Yeah. But now like a few months ago I went and I loved it. I mean, it was great. Yeah. Just like looking how like intricate everything was. I mean, it's really beautiful. Yeah. What did the Quakers do? What, what, what were the definitions of their work on furniture? Um, I guess I, I would probably not to be too reductive, but I feel like simplicity, just like just real, just beautiful simplicity. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I kind of agree with that. My mother has a big thing for sort of Quaker furniture. Yeah. Um, and it's just really lovely. Yeah. It's just yeah. And it's funny. I it kind of follows this food mantra of local sustainable too. I mean, they they were you know using uh, the utilities that they had around them to make that rather than importing wood and doing that. And do you ever look for kind of local sustainable uh, materials to use, maybe foraging wood around construction sites, or you've just sold on the cherry and... I mean, for right now, I mean, uh, the issue sort of with using reclaimed stuff um, is that lots of times, you know, it has lots of, like, nails in it, which is absolutely atrocious for, you know, any sort of, like, woodworking equipment. So it does kind of limit you. I mean, like, if you're going to put it through, like, a joiner planer, and if you're using it with a table saw, you know, and, and, you know, if there's a small nail, like, that probably isn't the end of the world, not great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do try to, like, you know, the wood I get is from Pennsylvania. Um, so I try to, like, keep things as, you know, close to home as yeah. possible. Certainly. It, it's funny. I don't think I really knew a, a lot about wood. Yeah. <laughs> General, up until a couple of years ago, my girlfriend and I uh, did a piece for Edible Brooklyn about this guy named The Woodman who sells a lot of firewood uh, to restaurants. But about the laws of transporting wood, too, and drying and kiln drying. Uh, do you get, you know, pre-dried wood from Pennsylvania? Do you get... Yeah. So, um, basically... Uh, and I do primarily deal with like a middleman, um, but a lot, at least my impression has been, um, particularly like in, in sort of Pennsylvania, it's like a lot of stuff is still kind of like very um, much run by families, even though I'm de- dealing with like a pretty sizable middleman. Um, and uh, they actually get it, they dry it, um, and it's usually kiln dried, which um, in terms of walnut, uh, it's kind of, and walnut I think always looks really beautiful when it's kiln dried. It's um it does burn out a lot of color, but it just turns out to be like a real like rich like sort of golden um brown yeah um, to like a really dark brown. But if it's air dried, um you know you get some really nice colors in there like purples, greens, and yellows. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's really wonderful. So stuff. I mean you can you have a palette. Yeah, a palette yeah, and, and you do. Yeah, and, and uh, um as far as the uh, you know uh, the aesthetic of the boards, it's kind of you know that cross hatched uh, checkerboard thing. Um, do you ever think about playing around with the aesthetics or the look of that? Um, by and large, you know, I, I've kind of actually tried to avoid that mostly just cause I mean, it, it's kind of like me finicky nitpicking, but you know, technically, you know, cherry and walnut, um, you know, they're of different densities. They have, you know, they're porous in different ways. Um, and it's, I've, I've been finding kind of made better just in terms for stability to try to kind of like keep, um, to like sort of one wood variety. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly for a few reasons, you have to take into account sort of grain pattern, um, besides sort of, besides sort of the, um, aesthetics of it. Uh, it also, I mean, the board is inevitably going to, 
you know, absorb and release moisture from the air. And you can construct it in such a way, and the grain pattern so it can actually sort of like do it naturally together, thusly or thus, uh, you know, reducing the chance of like a split. Um, so it's kind of about structural integrity. Yeah, and structural integrity, but also, you know, I feel like it also just, I mean, it looks really nice. Just like there's yeah. a real rhythm. I mean, there is, there's like a real rhythm to it. It's yeah. like watching sort of like, you know, these sort of waves sort yeah. of on the board. Have you ever thought of doing a Dadaist? cutting board i actually i kind of have yeah um so? I, I, I i always get kind of stumped like well, how do you kind of like make like reduce you know the function of a cutting board um i've thought about you know maybe making something particularly thin so because i mean when end grain has to be of a particular thickness for it to um really remain stable so you know if you're to make it thinner so that way you know start cracking pretty quickly actually yeah yeah um, i kind of like the temporal idea behind you know yeah you know, yeah, there there have been like sort of some some projects in the back of my head that I've been sort of toying around with. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, I'm excited to see those in the future. And how can people find your butcher blocks? Where are they? Website? Um, yeah, um, you know, I sell them. You know, primarily uh, at you know through my website. You can just shoot me an email if you go to BrooklynButcherBlocks.com. Um, all my uh, you know information is there. Just shoot me an email with what you're interested in. And uh, also, I sell at Cut Brooklyn uh, for on a. Uh, for 61 third avenue at joel's uh, yeah joel's new shop fantastic and if you haven't seen these true pieces of art they're not just butcher blocks check yeah. them out nils thank you so much yeah, and now you. nils is actually going to walk around the studio a little bit more and look at uh, all the amazing <laughs> wood grain that we have here yeah so, i mean it smells great in here yeah, yeah excellent um you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network a big thank you to Kane Vineyard and Winery, Kane5.com. Jack Inslee, our producer, and hope to have you back here next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. The long-awaited documentary The Vanishing of the Bees will be screening in Astoria, Queens at the Broadway branch of the Queens Public Library on Monday, September 19th. I know that seems like a long ways away, but it isn't. It will be broadcast from 6 to 8 p.m. More information about this fascinating look at bee life and colony collapse disorder can be found at their website at www.vanishingbees.com. I also wanted to add that the producers are all working on a 30-minute educational video for high school students, so any parent or teacher should check out the site to see what he or she can do to work with the team to bring this into a school curriculum. The film has a Facebook page as well that discusses current events that affect bees. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to cull the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October.